Multi-Unit Month is brought to you by the DS Group, a multi-unit and multi-brand franchise group that prides itself on operational excellence, speed of service and the growth of its people within the hospitality space. Welcome to this multi-unit month takeover of the Global Franchise Podcast. I'm Kieran McLoon, editor for Global Franchise Magazine. Over the course of this multi-unit month, we've shone a spotlight on several of the key factors and challenges currently impacting multi-unit franchise professionals. We've spoken directly to multi-unit operators to learn about their daily opportunities, and have also caught up with the financial and legal experts to uncover the behind-the-scenes roadblocks that entrepreneurs can sometimes encounter. For this final episode of Multi-Unit Month, we're speaking to three industry heavyweights about the future of franchising. This means taking a look at trends to come in the months ahead, as well as learning from their experience of being embedded in the franchise world for a cumulative number of decades. The first of today's guests is Dr. John P. Hayes, CFE, the chair at the Titus Centre for Franchising. John is renowned in the international franchising world as a veteran of the industry and is a strong advocate for educating the next generation of franchise leaders and multi-unit franchisees. We wanted to speak with John about the current state of education around franchising, whether large multi-unit operators are challenging the traditional idea of the business model, and what trends he believes have occurred as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, since the average person doesn't know what franchising is, (laughs) they surely don't know what multi-unit franchising is. Yeah. You know, I've been at this for 40 years, and um, people don't know any more about franchising today than they knew 40 years ago when I knew nothing about franchising. I didn't know how to spell the word. I wrote my first book about it. I just think we haven't, we don't have the capacity in place. We don't have enough education occurring to make an impact. You know, every newspaper, magazine, uh, social media, television programs, et cetera, they all have something about franchising sooner or later to some degree. But it, doesn't make an impact. Mm. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're, we're at a loss there. Now, things are definitely going to get better, I think, because you know, we, we never taught franchising in schools of, at any level. Some colleges have courses in franchising, at least the introductory course to franchising, but not many. But now, in addition to the Titus Center's Palm Beach Atlantic University uh, concentration in franchising, there are three more universities, major universities, that are introducing franchising in their curriculum. So this is starting to make an impact. We've been at it for five years, and there have been other universities around the United States that have a franchise program, one up in New England, for example, but it's mostly been research-oriented. The same for one in Atlanta, research-oriented. We were the, the first to offer a concentration, and we're the only one to offer a concentration in franchising, which is 12 credit hours for a concentration. It's not a major or a minor. There is a university that I think has a small group of students 
who can get a major. Uh, I think it's an online program in the Midwest, but across the United States. And if it's not happening in the United States, it's probably not not to be arrogant. It's probably not happening in other countries mm. where there is formal education about franchising. Yeah. But it's starting to uh, pick up and particularly online as well. Yeah, no, it certainly sounds like at least things are moving in the right direction. But as you say, we're still kind of in the infancy of that level of education to compared to what it will undoubtedly become. Um, just kind of shifting gears a little bit, John, uh, an area that you wrote about recently for us, actually, for global franchises, this idea of the shifting face of franchising kind of and private equities involvement in the area and how a lot of money is now you know, getting involved in franchising. And do you think that in light of these kind of changes that we're seeing a, a gradual shift away from the sort of traditional idea of, you know, a direct mom and pop kind of franchise towards these large multi-unit and master agreements? Or is there space within the market to incorporate every kind of sort of, you know, franchise development model? Yeah, we're going to continue with the single unit operator because there are just many brands that lend themselves to that. They want that. And there are many buyers who are not ambitious enough to say, I want three, five or 500 of anything. So in multi-unit where you're in one brand, but you own multiples of that brand, most people still today don't want to do that. But there is a uh, certainly an increasing number of people who do want to own more than one because maybe the brand, maybe it's a small operation and they, they can't make enough money out of one. If, if you take um, what you may know as mailboxes, et cetera, but yeah. we know as the UPS store, you know, that is ideal for owning multiples and owning just one might give you. Uh, a good living, but probably not what most people need today to live, uh, particularly in the United States, where it's getting so expensive with inflation. Mm. Uh, so there, there's an increase of desire by people who want to own multiples, not only multiple units of the same brand, but multiple brands. And at the same time that that's happening, when I, I was thinking uh, just yesterday and preparing for a uh, uh, a presentation that I'm doing, I was thinking about, you know, when I got started in this, there were only about 2,000 franchise brands in America. And uh, I probably knew 1,000 of them over a period of time and certainly knew the 500 most popular. I mean, you, you, you would recognize the names, not that I worked for them, not that I ever shopped in one, but I knew about them because it was my business to know about them. Today, there's double. There's 4,000 brands, and it's there are many, many franchises that I scratch my head and say, I had no idea, never heard of that franchise brand. But in addition to that, each it used to be each brand was owned by one company, and very few companies owned multiple brands. Mm. And now today, the most confusing thing to me, uh, particularly in my older age, is trying to get my brain to wrap around uh, all these new names that are attached to uh, brands or companies like Neighborly, where there's not one brand, there are 30 some brands in Neighborly. Uh, and uh, now there are others. So they go on and on and inspire brands. I, 
I can't even remember clean brands. I can't remember all, all of the companies within them. So franchising in that sense has, is becoming more complicated, at least in being able to identify who's who and, and then making sense of what you want to do if you're interested in becoming a franchisee. Yeah, no, it certainly seems, as you say, like the, the franchising space has become much more um, kind of amalgamated i don't know whatever word you'd want to use for it you know there's there's a lot of these big uh, players that do as you say own many many brands and it's um shifted sort of the idea i think of franchising um but do you think kind of that leads quite nicely onto my next question for you which was just talking about kind of off the back hopefully off the back of the pandemic um which we're currently in do you think that that has accelerated some of these trends you know these acquisitions and these growth uh, this growth among these large franchise groups um and i sort of secondary to that do you think that there's any other trends with relation to multi-unit or you know large franchising deals that have been accelerated by the pandemic well i i don't think they've been accelerated i i, I have no evidence of that these um movements were in play these brands were in play uh, for the most part or at least the idea of the brands was in play way before the uh pandemic yeah you know we i don't want to uh, I don't want you to think or the audience to think that, gee, we, we never had anyone that owned multiple brands. Well, the Dwyer Group, for example, which is now known as Neighborly, but when Don Dwyer started the company with one brand, Rainbow International, uh, he then later decided, you know, my, my corporate structure is like a birdcage. It's a beautiful... Uh, housing for a, a bird. But why just one bird? If the bird is the brand, why can't I have three brands? Because it's the same accounting department. It's the same sales department. It's the same HR department. Uh, there's a lot of uh, corporate structure that comes with the cage. And why can't I uh, add birds to the cage? And so he did early on in the 80s, late 80s and 90s, when I was on the Dwyer board and working very closely with Don Dwyer on projects, uh, he had nine different brands uh, at one point. And, uh, and the company then continued from there until it became neighborly. So it wasn't, well, we've just recently discovered this uh, these umbrella brands that have five, six, 10, 20 uh, individual companies underneath. Uh, this has been going on for a while. So the pandemic might have slowed it down rather than accelerated it because there was a pretty good period of time when we were all shut down. Mm. Franchising continued. We continued to sell franchises through the pandemic and really amazingly well how franchisors adapted to pandemic conditions. But you know, people weren't traveling, people weren't talking as much, people weren't exploring new opportunities as much. So I don't think the pandemic accelerated it. Right. Okay. And uh, my my final question for you, John, is just kind of looking ahead about the future of franchising. Um, what personally excites you with regards to possible changes or evolutions that we're seeing at the moment for franchising in 2022 and beyond? Well, I think we started out talking about education, and I find more and more. This is where it is. What's wrong with us that we don't understand that to be good at anything 
education or training or an understanding of the concept is critical to it. You, you can't rise to the top of anything without understanding what it's all about and how it works. And we seem to fool ourselves. In fact, um, one of my students out of my concentration in franchising, I've had 25 graduates so far in five years, and uh, most of them are out working in franchising. Several of them are franchisees. One became a franchisor in a relationship with another franchisor. When my students come back from meetings, as one did from the IFA uh, convention, where uh, he was part of a roundtable, and people at the roundtable who were much older than him, this is a, a young man who's uh, 22, 23 years old, and people at the roundtable were, were in franchising for 10 years, and he's just come out of college in the last year. And they said to him, because he became the leader of the roundtable, and they said to him, how do you know so much at your age? Well, because he has an education in franchising. And when my students, my graduates, go out into the world, they know more about franchising than the majority of employees and franchise companies will know about franchising. And surely they know more than first-year franchisees. And that should be an awakening to people. We've got to educate franchisees more than just teaching them uh, the training manual or teaching them how to get from A to Z in their business to make it successful, there's much more that they, they need to know and employees who don't know uh, about uh, franchising. There was a, um, a fellow in development who went to one of my uh, graduates who's working in development at a particular brand in the United States. And this fellow who's been in longer says to my graduate, why is the item 19 important in the U.S. franchise disclosure document? Well, anybody who's been in development for a day should know why item 19 is important. But apparently, this young man, this, this person was never educated mm. on that topic. We, we need to do more education. And I'm excited about that because I've devoted my life to educating people, not just at the university level, but in public forums, like at the expos, that uh, I teach people about franchising and how to take advantage of it. John touched on the fact that while single unit franchising is certainly here to stay, an increasing number of operators will be turning to multi-unit ownership due to the possibility of a heightened ROI that comes with having multiple franchise locations. There will always be space in the market for those smaller owner operators, but the economy and financial demands on all of us nowadays are pushing more and more investors towards larger opportunities. That being said, the concepts of multi-unit or multi-brand franchising have been around for many years, as shown by John's example of the Dwyer Group. A spotlight may be shone on this area nowadays, but that's just because the franchise model is being increasingly understood by the masses, even though there is still a ways to go in educating even more people about franchising's benefits. Our next guest is equally passionate about advocating the benefits of franchising, having been immersed in the industry for several decades. Catherine Monson is the CEO of Propelled Brands and has also occupied the role of chair for the International Franchise Association for two years in a row. She's seen it all when it comes to franchising's ups and downs and is the perfect person to speak to about the past trajectory of franchise ownership 
and its exciting future. So today, of course, we're speaking about multi-unit franchising, which is um, commonly regarded nowadays as kind of a, an, a, an up-and-coming trend in the industry. But would you say, as somebody who's been in the industry for a number of years now, that multi-unit franchising has always been prominent, or is it something that's kind of new and growing at the moment? Well, I would say it has always been prominent, but it is definitely increasing. And I believe it's increasing because over the last 20, 25, 30 years, we've had so many successful franchisees grow to be multi-unit franchisees, whether we're talking about fast food, fast casual, seated dining, or any other kind of uh, part of franchising, whether we're talking about signage or IT support or childcare, right? And I think that we're all aware that franchising is an outstanding way to get in business with a proven brand, a proven model. Uh, All of that marketing and other stuff is done. So what the franchisee can focus on is hiring great people, creating and uh, maintaining great culture and focus on execution of actually running the business. And so as I have seen over the years and have become friends with many large multi-brand, multi-unit franchisees, they love the fact that they don't have to think about the marketing, the branding, the processes are in place, and it's just a case of execution, great people, and great culture. And so I think that's why we're seeing it continue to grow, and I believe it will continue to grow. Absolutely. And um, kind of specifically about your experience within franchising, Catherine, of course, you were the previous chair at the IFA. And within that role, you fought on behalf of franchisors and franchisees against the likes of the PRO Act, which is something I know you spoke in depth about at this year's IFA convention. Um, Just along those lines, what do you think are some of the biggest issues and challenges facing multi-unit franchisees today? I think, of course, we all have to work together to make sure that there aren't expansions in the definition of joint employer and that the PRO Act doesn't come back. And I think the International Franchise Association has done an outstanding job of getting franchisees and franchisors to take action when those things happen. So we're going to continue to do that. But I think the biggest challenges today, whether you're a franchisee or an independent business owner, is the labor shortage and supply chain challenges. And I, many, many of my friends are multi-unit franchisees in lots of different industries. And that is the biggest headache that they are all facing right now. For sure. And um, and of course, among your many kind of positions of prominence you've held within the franchising industry, you are the CEO of Propelled Brands. And when you're looking at expanding the concepts within the Propelled Brands portfolio, Catherine, um, what do you look for? What kind of do you think makes for an excellent multi-unit franchisee? Or kind of on the flip side of that, does it differ depending on the specific franchise brand you're looking to develop? Well, I really think that the key skills and characteristics of a successful multi-unit franchisee starts with leadership skills. This is all about hiring, training, developing great people to execute whatever the business model is of that particular franchise. So leadership skills and then that ability to develop culture and develop people. Of course, it's going to take capital, more capital, depending on the kind of franchise you're in. But those leadership skills combined with really strong execution skills. And I think as if someone is coming to a brand for the first time, right, let's say they're already a a proven multi-unit franchisee, what we're going to want to see is that track record of success, right? And when I look at our current three brands, you know, with Fast Signs, we already have 22% of our Fast Signs locations are multi-unit. Now, Generally speaking, there are two or three or four locations as opposed to 300 or 400 locations like some of the the food franchises are. And uh, with our 
fledgling brand nerds to go we've got a couple multi-unit franchisees and a lot of multi-unit franchisees with my salon suite so i think it's that focus on leadership skills strong execution developing culture uh, motivating people and that track record of success is what anybody would look for and my final question for you catherine is slightly more evergreen i suppose what excites you about possible changes or developments or trends in franchising for the rest of 2022 and beyond well i believe franchising is going to remain strong and the reason franchising is so strong is you have the brain power of the entire network working to solve challenges working to solve problems it's not just the corporate team it's all of those franchisees working together and that's why i believe franchising came through the pandemic very, very well and will continue to thrive no matter what comes our way in the future, whether we're talking about economic cycles or other challenges because of that brain power of the entire network. Now, we do hear a lot about the great resignation and we know there's a critical labor shortage, but I truly believe that the great resignation is also going to be good for franchising because Outside of being independently wealthy and not needing to have any income, if you don't want to work with somebody else, you have the opportunity to become a franchisee, to own your own business, be your own boss, control your own destiny. Uh, and so I think we're going to continue to see a lot of growth in franchising, a lot of people getting into franchising for the first time and multi-unit franchisees looking to um, add more brands and more locations to their portfolio. So I, franchising is going to be strong, stay strong, and it is because of that brain power of everybody within a brand. Catherine's explanation for the rise of multi-unit operators makes a lot of sense. We've seen more and more entrepreneurs turn their expertise into a successful, profitable multi-unit portfolio, and this naturally encourages others to jump on the multi-unit bandwagon. As she also touched upon, however, there are some fundamental skills that all multi-unit or multi-brand owners would do well to possess. Leadership is a key pillar of this skill set and is something that many of our guests throughout the duration of this series have advocated for. Our final guest for this multi-unit month series is Jim Bayliss, the CEO of multi-brand organization Sizzling Platter. With an expansive portfolio of food and beverage franchises, Sizzling Platter is one of the most considerable multi-brand operators in the US. As such, we wanted to mine Jim's insight to learn more about the challenges facing operators today, the possible synergies within a multi-brand portfolio, and why the franchise industry in 2022 is more exciting than ever. Well, I mean, certainly we're in some turbulent times here, but, you know, it continues to be staffing is the major challenge that we face. Recruiting people, uh, people returning to work, and then, you know, being at work and, and trying to retain them, you know, turnover has been running higher than has been historically. Um, we're having to pay higher wages uh, in order to recruit and retain people. And, you know, the, the, the problem rises if there's turnover in the restaurant, you know, if the GM turnover is higher, that impacts the overall performance of the restaurant. If the crew member turnover is higher, that puts more pressure on the GM and it creates a bit of a vicious cycle there. So, you know, we try to try to manage that as best we can. And, you know, it's, it's upon us to find, try to find ways to improve staffing by keeping, you know, our multi-unit managers engaged and, and keeping the crew members engaged. And a couple of the others are, you know, supply chain, no surprise. I mean, globally, supply chain has been a huge challenge. We're facing various shortages 
you know, everything from cups to straws to napkins to certain food products, and we're being forced to use, you know, non-branded products or alternative specs for some of the food items uh, that we're not able to get. And then the last one, you know, is inflation and pricing. Uh, you know, costs are rising at their core, plus the cost for distribution as well. It's impacting everything from food to non-food items, you know, any also, you know, items in the middle of the P&L, everything like, um, you know, uniforms, insurance. I mean, it's literally touching everything. You know, the question becomes, can you continue to take price to offset it to try to at least catch up or get ahead, which a lot of, uh, you know, businesses have been trying to do. Um, so far, we've been able to manage through it. But, you know, it, it is facing some uh, some headwinds here as, as prices continue to rise. For sure. Yeah, no, I know a lot of those kind of issues that you've just brought up, you know, felt across the industry. But if we're looking specifically at um, the sizzling platter portfolio, I know that you have, you know, an expansive number of brands. And I was wondering, Jim, whether there's any kind of synergies that are possible when you have the number of brands that you do or whether you tend to operate each as an independent vertical. Yeah, so here at Sizzling, we're we're a shared services platform. So the way it works is, you know, we have each of our brands sort of plug into the shared services that we offer at the support center. And so each of the brands has a brand president, and that brand president, you know, utilizes the various shared services. So whether it's marketing, HR, real estate, you know, marketing is probably a good example. You know, we have a particular brand president that, you know, wants to launch a marketing campaign. He's going to plug into the marketing team that we have here, and they're going to help develop it with them. And then, you know, where we can see some synergies is, you know, in some other area, you know, within marketing, some other areas. So, um, you know, we have, I think, three or four different brands in South Texas right now. And so we're able to hire a marketing manager for that geography that can work with all of the brands and, you know, meet with local businesses and, and do things locally and leverage, you know, one person across multi-brands in a single geography. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we're not allowed to have a coupon that has multiple brands on it. We're prohibited under our franchise agreement. Mm. But, you know, that's one area where, you know, we're certain, certainly there's certainly some synergies, data analytics, you know, HR compliance, for example, if, you know, there's certain HR compliance issues in the U.S. that we have to, you know, deploy and, and people have to go through certain training so we can use the same person and the same uh, deployment across multiple brands. And then there's some synergy on some some purchasing items that are not specific to the brand. So like garbage bags is a great example. You know, we buy those across all the brands. We try to save some money by leveraging our scale uh, in that regard. And then obviously reporting, you know, we're reporting across multiple brands. So as we look at efficiency within one, we look at efficiency within multiple brands and so we're able to you know really leverage the efficiencies in reporting and, and data analytics as well right okay and um, when we're looking at kind of the those synergies and the sort of portfolio that sizzling brands is comprised of do you think that multi-brand ownership works best if all the concepts like within your portfolio are within the one sector that being food and beverage or is diversification do you think a beneficial thing or alternatively do you think it doesn't really matter what kind of brands you go for it's the way that you run them yeah, I mean, that's a really good question and a question that, uh, you know, we've discussed here internally quite a bit. You know, currently um, we're just in restaurants, but, you know, what we're running into now, which, you know, what makes this question so pointed is competitive restrictions. So, for example, you know, if we're in uh, Dunkin', uh, you know, we can't move into another coffee brand. And so 
as we expand into other brands, we're limited ultimately in the segments that we can operate in, and there's only a few segments left. And so, you know, part of the strategy of being a shared services company is to give us flexibility to move into different sectors. And I do think uh, that diversification is important. You know, even within restaurants, it's important to be in multiple brands and multiple, you know, day parts. You don't want to be overly, overly reliant on a single brand or on a single segment ultimately as we grow. Um, you know, certain brands have certain commodity exposures, so it's nice to have, you know, brands that aren't in a single commodity that are part of your portfolio, or even, um, you know, some brands resonate better during a recession. And so, you know, you can protect yourself during, you know, changes in the economy. Um, you know, our goal is really just to be a, a best-in-class operator regardless and, you know, a best-in-class franchisee of brands. And so ultimately really favor diversification and, you know, ultimately would consider moving outside of just the restaurant segment, as I think it makes sense to, to further diversify beyond just uh, one segment. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to hear. And um, as you say, I imagine that operators like yourself are running into that where they found such great success within QSR or within whatever industry they're running into. But obviously, franchise agreements have certain restrictions around that. So um, we will likely see more of that across the board. Um, my final question for you, Jim, is just about quite broad about franchising in 2022. And that's as somebody who's kind of been immersed in this industry for a while now. Um, what excites you about possible changes or trends or just in general for franchising this year and beyond? You know, first, I think franchisors are, are finally beginning to see the returns on investing in technology. You know, the restaurant space that we operate in has been, you know, far behind a lot of other segments. Cars are being made 100% by robots at this point, you know, and, and we have very little automation uh, back of the house. So, you know, and I think there are two kinds of technologies that a lot of the brands are focusing on right now. One is, you know, on the guest experience, you know, whether it's uh, a person that pulls up to a drive through is identifying, you know, the brand is identifying through their face or license plate or some other measure who they are, uh, enabling, uh, the, you know, the POS system to bring up what they ordered last time as a recommend, using AI to say, oh, you know, people that buy these items typically can be upsold into these other items, uh, which improves guest check and ultimately the guest experience and, you know, just other, you know, general loyalty and, and purchasing technology. Um, and then the other you know, piece of technology that brands are, are really starting to, to look into are, is those that affect the franchisees, not just the consumers, uh, which I touched on just briefly, which is some of the automation, you know, whether it's a voice AI at the drive through kind of like a Siri or Alexa, you know, that's, that's enabling the person that is listening on the headset uh, and assembling the orders versus having to interact and enter it into the point of sale. Um, and then just automation generally back of the house. You know, you're seeing a lot more brands look at um, various types of automation, whether it's making beverages or taking fries out of a fryer basket, putting them into the fryer, uh, just a number of, of automated um, technologies that are being rolled out that the brands are, are investing in. You know, I think the other thing that's pretty exciting is uh, as more companies see the opportunity within franchising, you're starting to see more brands dip their toe into franchising, which brings it beyond the typical, you know, restaurants or the QSR. And you're, you know, there's some fantastic independent brands out there that have really good unit economics. And as those brands start to franchise, not only is it interesting for us as a franchisee, but, you know, those unit economics that they're posting and more franchisees like us get involved with it, 
then the franchisors start looking at their own economics and saying, wow, maybe we have to post some better economics for our franchisees to make them happy. And it you know, pushes them forward, which helps us as franchisees on our margins of profitability. Jim brought up an interesting point that's worth considering for all multi-brand operators or prospective franchisees. That being, Sizzling Platter is now running into competitive restrictions as all of its concepts are currently within the QSR segment. This means that it will inevitably have to branch out into other industries if growth is on the cards. When entrepreneurs are first starting out, this risk of non-compete clauses may not be as much of a concern. But if you're strategizing for the long term, then understanding your legal restrictions as soon as possible is key. This may not be uh, much of a hurdle moving forward, of course, as Jim also touched on the fact that more and more brands are now entering the franchising world. So if you decide that you want to run a VR gaming concept alongside a cannabis dispensary brand, you can. These are two industries that didn't even exist a decade or so ago, but the sky really is the limit now when it comes to possible ownership models. That brings us to the end of this series of conversations for the multi-unit month takeover of the Global Franchise Podcast, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Hopefully, these four installments have provided you with all the insight and expertise you'd need to launch your own multi-unit or multi-brand empire. But for more information and to check out our webinars and our white paper, visit globalfranchise.com forward slash multi-unit month.